What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Petka. And I'm Mark Tiefman. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell is going on now? What the hell is going on, Danny, is there is an uprising in Cuba. The Cuban people have gotten sick and tired of the Castro dictatorship, which is now continued in the wake of the death, Fidel, and retirement of Raul. And they have taken to the streets in the largest protests since the revolution of 1959. They are marching, they are chanting for freedom, they are communicating via social media for the first time, which is allowing these protests to not just be in one city in Havana, but take that place all through the country. The regime is cracking down, they've arrested over 100 opposition leaders, but the Cuban people aren't standing down. Things are coming to a head. And we're going to talk to um, Roger Noriega, who many of our listeners remember has been on uh, the podcast a number of times talking about all things Central and Latin American. But one thing that was striking to me was that President Biden did not have the canned uh, response that I expected from a Democratic president. He was encouraging. He didn't pretend that the Cuban people were protesting the lack of COVID vaccines as his State Department acting assistant secretary for Western Hemisphere Affairs did. He said, we support the Cuban people in their quest for freedom. So that was a hopeful straw in the wind. I just, I want to see us do more. Oh yeah, hundred percent. I think Biden's statement was good to begin with, but look, he just came back from a trip from Europe where he promised to rally the world's democracies against the world's autocracies. Well, here's your chance. The people of Cuba are rising up. What are you going to do to help them in a concrete way? This is an opportunity for him. And it's not just in our country's interest and the Cuban people's interest. The Cuban American vote is the key to winning Florida. If you would think that the Democrats even if they didn't care about Cuba all that much, would care about Florida enough that they would rally around to do something and see this as an opportunity to rally the Cuban-American community. Wouldn't it be amazing to be able to claim that, well, you know, Castro survived however many American presidents, but the regime fell under Joe Biden's watch. This is a huge moment of opportunity for the president both to fulfill what he promised just a few weeks ago, and also to have a great legacy that would have political ramifications for him and for the Democratic Party. Look, amen. I mean, this is, you know, we've talked about these meetings of of the moral and the strategic. You know, the Cuban government has not just been an oppressor to its own people. The Cuban government has been a beachhead of what was once Soviet and is now Russian interference in the United States. It is a beachhead of destabilization for destabilization in Latin America and in South America. The Cuban regime controls the odious, odious regime in Venezuela. And, you know, this would really be I think one of the most striking ways that this administration could show that when they say they mean dictator, they don't just mean dictators who Donald Trump liked. 
They actually mean dictators, dictators who are oppressing their people. And the nearest dictatorship to us, 90 miles off our shore, is in Cuba. There's one other thing I want to talk about before um, we get to Roger, and that is this calumny. And it is a calumny that the United States is responsible for the COVID that is ravaging Cuba as we speak. What people should understand is the embargo that has been in place now for many years has no sanctions on food, no sanctions on medicine. The United States sells and provides an assistance, an enormous amount of food to Cuba, as the White House spokesman said, I think just yesterday. In addition, the Cubans have refused to accept vaccines. They're not part of the COVAX consortium that the World Health Organization has put together. Instead, they have invented, uh, and I use that word lightly, invented their own vaccine, which they are forcing the Cuban people to use, which has had absolutely no testing, no peer review. And as best I can tell, I can't, I can't remember who said this. I think it was Jim Garrity from National Review who said, and might as well just be something coming out of a Pez dispenser. Bernie Sanders and others always hold up the Cuban medical system as being this wonderful, wonderful uh, example of how socialism works, right? He, he basically wants to model the U.S. healthcare system on the Cuban healthcare system with Medicare for all. He wants to socialize medicine, have all government health care. And what you have in Cuba, and I know this because Roger and I traveled to Cuba and we visited Cuban hospitals. We talked to Cuban doctors. For the Cuban regime, the healthcare system is all about sucking in hard currency. So there is a first tier medical system for the elites and for foreigners with hard currency. And then there is this craptastic healthcare system for the Cuban people, which has no supplies, can't even take care of basic medical ailments, common ailments, much less COVID. And so you have COVID spreading through Cuba and the healthcare system can't handle it. And then at the same time, the Cuban regime has been sending its best doctors who could be treating Cubans with COVID to foreign countries in exchange for hard currency so they can suck up hard currency. So they're sending their best medical professionals. It would be as if Governor Cuomo had taken all the best doctors in New York and sent them to California to make money at the very moment that COVID was ravaging New York. This is essentially what the Cuban regime has done. So the, the idea that we're in any way responsible for the COVID pandemic that is ravaging there is, is, is absurd. It's socialism that is responsible. And if you like the Cuban healthcare system, you're going to love Medicare for all. Two points that I think are of interest. I was um, in the Caribbean uh, about a month and a half ago. And in order to leave, I had to have a COVID test. And guess who gave me that COVID test? <laughs> That's right. A Cuban doctor. So what was he doing in the Virgin Islands, you ask, when there's so much COVID in Cuba? Yeah, exactly. Second point, I actually was, I saw a doctor about, oh God, 10 years ago now. And he was one of these do-goody, nice type of doctors who wanted to give his time to the Cuban people because he really, he absolutely hated the embargo and thought America was uh, was a criminal uh, in pursuing it. And he went down to Cuba and he he told me about it. And he came back and he said, you know, these, these much vaunted Cuban hospitals, he said, I served in the one for the regime. There's nobody from Cuba who's allowed in those places. <laughs> exactly. 
he was horrified. I think what people need to realize is not only is the Cuban regime corrupt in the way you've just described with these, you know, this apartheid system where there's great hospitals for the regime and foreigners with hard currency, but not for the Cuban people. I think people don't really truly appreciate how repressive the Cuban regime is. This is the equivalent of having North Korea 90 miles off of our shores. This is one of the most totalitarian states on the face of the earth. There is no free market economy except for a handful of restaurants that are allowed to function. Everybody works for the Cuban state. Everybody is dependent on the Cuban state. Everybody is dependent on for their job. They're dependent for their education. If you speak out against the regime, all of a sudden you can't go to university and you can't get an education. When Roger and I were in Havana and our taxi driver in one case was a doctor. He was driving the cab because he made more money as a taxi driver for foreigners than he did as a Cuban doctor. That's how perverse this regime is and how oppressive this regime is. And the second thing is, why is this time different? So this regime has been in power since 1959. They've survived you know, every president going back to JFK through Donald Trump and now Joe Biden, right? Why would this be different? Here's why. A couple of different forces have taken place. Cuba is now facing the worst economic crisis since the collapse of the Soviet Union. The economy contracted 11%. They've lost all their tourism because of COVID, which is the main source of hard currency for them. So they are in a really, really bad economic situation. People say, well, the embargo hasn't worked. The reason the embargo hasn't worked in squeezing the regime is because for most of the, the period of the Cold War, it was offset by subsidies from the Soviet Union, right? When the Soviet Union collapsed and those subsidies dried up, they opened up and started selling expropriated properties to Europeans and tried to draw the European Union in to replace the Soviet Union as the financer of the Cuban regime. And the Europeans quickly found out that doing business in Cuba is not that profitable and it doesn't work all that way. And so a lot of that investment dried up. And then they became dependent on the Venezuelan regime, which was flush with cash from its oil sales. Well, guess what? Venezuela has collapsed. And so the third replacement source of Soviet subsidies has dried up. So they're now in a situation where they've got nowhere to turn for hard currency. There's no new Soviet Union coming in. And then second of all, the rise of social media. It's only in the last two years or so that they have gotten widespread access to the internet and social media. And so what this means is that the Cuban opposition has been able to organize and they've been able to communicate. And the people who've been repressed and who were isolated by the regime and told that nobody supports you, all of a sudden they're realizing that everybody supports them and they're able to organize. So the combination of this economic crisis with no safety valve to turn on, no one to turn to to bail them out, and the increased ability of the Cuban opposition to communicate means that this could actually be it if we handle this right. And so this is an opportunity for the Biden administration to seize this moment, a unique moment in history, and do something to help the Cuban people throw off this corrupt totalitarian dictatorship. So to talk about this, as advertised, is our former colleague uh, at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee uh, and at AEI, the head of Vision Americas, the former Assistant Secretary of State for Western Hemisphere Affairs, former ambassador to the Organization of American States. Really, there is no person more qualified. Our really dear friend, Roger Noriega. Well, Roger, welcome back to the podcast. It's a great pleasure. You are not only a dear friend of ours, but you are an expert on Cuba. You and I have traveled to Cuba together, and we've seen this country up close. We're now seeing what have been described as the biggest protest since the revolution in 1959. Tell us what the hell's going on in Havana. 
Well, yes, absolutely. The key point is it's beyond Havana. Uh, and that's what makes these protests unprecedented in the 62 years of that revolution. 40 different communities across the island reported uh, demonstrations, spontaneous demonstrations starting in a small town southwest of Havana, spread across the island in the course of the day, Sunday, because of social media. People were able to communicate with one another and they essentially just stepping up frustrated with this repressive regime that uh, pretends to order every aspect of these people's lives, but does so with increasing incompetence and causing essential challenges for everyday life, health care, education, food, and people have had enough. And uh, they started rising up uh, spontaneously. And yesterday, the government uh, started to crack down. You now have an information blockade. They shut down a lot of the uh, telecommunications, the ability of people to communicate with the island and those people on the island in an effort to smother this uh, discontent, to round up. Uh, apparently, there have been at least uh, 140 arrests, at least one death, and the regime will step in and try to crush any sort of uh, public expression of, of discontent. Roger, you use the word spontaneous, and obviously that's something that the Cuban government insists is not true, that these people are all being manipulated by outside forces in the United States. What brought these people to the street? Because, you know, obviously the Cuban regime has been in power for more than a half a century. Yes, things have gotten worse, but COVID has made them even worse. And yet it needed a spark. Do you know what that spark was? I don't have a specific example uh, that you find in other countries, but people have to spend their entire day finding food for the day, for their families. And when food becomes more and more scarce, desperation arises and people are sharing their problems on the street, expressing themselves on the street with their neighbors. And uh, apparently the government normal policemen stepped in and tried to detain people as they always do uh, to try to contain the problem. And what starts then is a confrontation between the crowd and the police. That very rarely happens because the police usually come with overwhelming force, but this is obviously a small town policemen trying to step in and, and control the crowds. Uh, and um, there was a reaction. Uh, and then it spread like wildfire across the island. And, and people in Cuba understand that their plight is solely the responsibility of the regime, which controls uh, every aspect of their lives. And also a broader context here is that this happened in Havana in 1994. It was based in Havana, you know, an uprising. It was put down, uh, frustrating a lot of us because Fidel made a speech he was able to dissuade people from rising up, uh, so they crushed the people who were directly involved, and then they tranquilized the population by saying things will get better and, and appealing to their commitment to the Cuban revolution and nationalism and all that. There is no Fidel anymore. There is no Raul anymore. Fidel died in 2016. Raul retired in 2021, early in April. And you have this apparatchik, Diaz Canel who was handpicked, of course, by the Castros uh, to run things. And he, you know, is this you know, bland bureaucrat who obviously didn't, does not have any ability to persuade the population 
to go along with uh, the continued repression in the country. So, uh, really, the regime is doomed. His regime is is doomed from the from the outset. It was just a question of of how uh, far and how fast the population will move to take over their own country and take control of their future. Roger, people keep talking about no food. I know we're going to talk about the embargo, but you know, there's no embargo on food to Cuba. Why isn't there enough food? It's an unbelievably agriculturally rich country, or could be. Right. Well, you know, even export commodities, take, for example, sugar. The sugar exports from Cuba today are at the level of 100 years ago. Command economies don't work. When Mark and I were in Cuba, we heard the story about uh, all of a sudden there were no chickens and no eggs. In, in Cuba, I guess this, the joke is what goes first, the chicken or the egg? Uh, and, and, and what happened was that the guy who's responsible for ordering chicken feed came up to his budget and didn't have any more money in the till to buy chicken feed. So all the chickens died and it didn't occur to anybody to respond to this thing. And it's this top-down management of the economy, which obviously never works. But let me be quick to say, this is also an instrument of repression, an instrument of social control, deprivation. They want everybody spending their time scurrying around looking for protein for their kids rather than thinking about their plight. And so, and this has been going on for decades. And so, you know, even when they have access to, you know, when, how, how does an island run out of tropical fruit? Uh, you know, and so it's just an example of the, how the regime keeps people under control, deprives them of essential goods, and sends the subtle message, and they've been doing this, bombarding the population for decades of self-loathing, that you are a Cuban and you don't deserve any better than, than what you're getting. And also the sense that the regime will come down brutally on you or your family. And Mark and I heard the comment from someone when we were in Cuba many years ago, but this has essentially has not changed, that every Cuban carries around a policeman in their head. And so they all, the self-loathing, the self-doubt, this, uh, you know, control yourself because uh, you're going to get your heads uh, cracked and, and it'll be even harder to get food the next day or impossible. And so it is a really a sinister system of repression in Cuba. Uh, it'll have to be studied. And more to, the po- more to the point, the people responsible for it have to be punished. And I think that's a message that we should be sending to those who might be looking to use brutality against the population today. I think that people just don't realize just how repressive Cuba is. We used to call it a tropical gulag. It's a tropical North Korea, literally one of the most repressive regimes left on the face of the earth. Talk a little bit about the committees of the defensive revolution on every block. Give people a very a, a quick insight into what life in Cuba is like. Well, 20 and 30 years ago, those instruments of repression of uh, neighborhood committees monitoring the way people talk, what they talk about, who they meet with what their attitudes, whether they smirk when they should be clapping for Fidel, uh, whether they attend meetings and all that. All of this is organized to decide who's an enemy of the revolution and who uh, should uh, be rewarded for their loyalty. And it's a system of, you know, it's been going on for the better part of 60 years. It has gotten a bit ragged. You'll remember, Mark, that we were hosted in the house 
of the woman who was the head of the committee for the defense of the revolution in her in her neighborhood. And she invited it in her house and told us uh, under her breath so no one would hear uh, that there was anybody listening uh, necessarily in, in her own living room uh, that Fidel is the Antichrist, she said. And that was the chairman of the defense of the revolution. And that was many years ago. The fact is it's it's gotten more and more ragged. There is no sense of community even among revolutionaries. It's all this kind of cynical, corrupt, uh, decrepit system. And I, that's why I always thought it was, frankly, it was sort of fragile. And that if tested, uh, that system would not hold up. Well, that fragility kind of seems to have been exposed by this access to social media. Another thing people don't realize about Cuba is they only got social media like two years ago and widespread internet access. And this is sort of rapidly escalated since then. And you've got this new San Yacid movement, which was sparked by this uh, Cuban artist named Mikel Castillo. And he put together this song called Patria y Vida, which means fatherland and life, which is a repudiation of the Cuban uh, revolutionary slogan, or fatherland or death. He was able to make a music video and record a song with a rapper in Miami. And this has become like the anthem of the movement for freedom in Cuba. That wouldn't have been possible two years ago to be able to collaborate on a music video and record a song together. This is what's changed, hasn't it? Absolutely. And I credit you for bringing that uh, up because it, that expression of patria y vida is in a, a repudiation. It goes right at an organizing principle, basically a, a hateful one, a destructive one and a self-destructive one, and instead replaces it with a very logical, we can have our country and our lives and our freedom. Look, the fact is you can learn more about what's going on in Cuba, talking to a housewife in Hialeah, than you can reading a CIA analysis of what's going on. There is constant communication between families uh, in the United States or in exile with what's going on in the island. Now they can control, they can try to control that with intense intervention now, and they have opposed this information blockade. We'll see how long it lasts, but we have to be smarter. Let's face it, the uh, technology sprung forward in just the last five years, let alone 10 or 15. And we have to think, how do we restore the ability of Cubans to overcome their fear by understanding that they are not alone, that they not only have uh, allies there among their loved ones on the island uh, that they have to fight for now, but that the world knows what's going on, to go right at the sense of isolation and desperation that the regime uses to keep people under control. Incidentally, there is no TV Marti capacity uh, remember this, uh, which we we fought for to try to overcome the uh, uh, jamming of television broadcasts, and they still jam Radio Marti, the uh, radio broadcasts, and they try to stop Voice of America from reaching the island. So, uh, and this just disappeared in 2013. The the TV Marti, sure the regime is going to jam, but they only win when we stop broadcasting. And, and that's a tool that we tried to preserve as long as we could, uh, and it went away. Uh, and it was a huge victory for the regime to shut that down because the Americans stopped trying. You'll remember, Mark, we were in the house, in, I think in uh, Santiago, a, a woman whose uh, doctor husband had been jailed, and she, she had this static going on in the background in another room. What was it? It was Radio Marti. It was just static. 
but she's just waiting for the voices to come through and for them over the jamming to be overcome for a few minutes or a few hours of the day. And so we need to get this message through that they're not isolated and we have to be much more proactive. It's just not enough to say uh, we stand with the Cuban people. Well, the Cuban people don't want to just stand. They want to move forward. They want to advance. They want to take the initiative. And we have to do more than just root for a, a fair fight between 11 million starving Cubans and a murderous regime. We have to be proactive. We have to get the international community, hold them to account. Where's Michelle Bachelet, the UN Special Rapporteur for Human Rights? She hasn't said a word about the repression going on there. And we just have to be much more proactive uh, in our messaging and in some of the actions that we should be taking to hold the regime accountable for anything that they do henceforth to crush uh, people just fighting for their lives and for their future. So, Roger, I want to talk about what it is that the United States and the international community can do, especially given the reaction of some in the United States. But I have one quick question first. What enables people in a revolution to overthrow their dictators is when the security forces decide that they are no longer going to follow the orders of the dictator. That's what we've seen pretty much everywhere. Is there any sign of that happening in Cuba yet? No sign of it happening. And my hopes are not very high in that regard. These are radicals who are in the military. Anybody that has access to use of force, guns or anything. They're rabid revolutionaries, so the word they would use, loyal to the regime. And I, one would hope that there's been subtle communication to some of these people appealing to their humanity. Uh, but fr- quite frankly, I think that it's more effective to say that they're going to end up in, well, let's say Guantanamo, uh, or being held accountable for human rights abuses if they use repression. That's the way you're going to get some of these people in their own self-interest to save their own skins. Will they pretend to say, you know, I'm standing with the people. And so we'll have to settle for that. And remember, there are always these people that, that don't want the United States to get involved. You know, very conveniently, there are people who have supported the revolution one through their passivity or even sometimes their active apologies who say, well, look, the Americans should just you know, step back. We don't want to look like we own this thing. But there are messages that we need to send to the international community about stepping up to defend fundamental human rights, holding people accountable for their corruption, for their brutality, and so that people will focus on whether they want to try to survive or do they want to try to be the last guy to kill for a, a dead revolution. So let's talk a little bit uh, about not just what the Americans can do, but let's talk for a second about the reaction. I saw that our good friend and capable leader, Mexican President Lopez Obrador, used the occasion to call for the end of the embargo, as have a lot of others in the United States of his political ilk. Is the blockade, is the embargo any part of what's happening in Cuba? Absolutely not. I mean, we don't have an embargo on food and medicine. It's the fact that you have a destitute regime that uh, doesn't pay its bills, that uh, swindles anybody that tries to trade with them. And uh, the scarcity is uh, caused by a corrupt and deadbeat regime. And uh, the scarcity of, you know, you can't grow sugar or tropical fruit with any kind of efficiency. I mean, it's the regime. That's the way they want it. It's the system. 
And the fact is most Cubans realize that. You just scratch the surface of the conversation with them and they, they realize it's their system. It's the system that's imposed on them by the, by the revolution, not whether or not they can access goods from another country. The fact is they trade with dozens of other countries. And the last time I heard, you can get rice and beans in places other than the United States, but even those things can be sold. Basic goods of food and medicine have been exempt from, uh, from the so-called U.S. sanctions uh, for 15 years. By the way, most of the money that Cubans get, the Cubans have, is sent by family members in the United States. Problem is the regime has systemically vacuums up uh, as much of the, that purchasing power as they can by you know, having dollar stores. If you have dollars, you have to spend them here. And you basically like trying to shop at an airport convenience store, those prices and, and scarcity. But that's how they vacuum up uh, the money and charging huge uh, transaction fees for, for money wired and making it as complicated as possible. But they, once you have those dollars, the regime has its way of, of getting hold of them. So there's no embargo on Venezuela. And look at Venezuela. It's a basket case. And that's a country that not only has tropical fruit, it has oil. <laughs> and it can't seem, it can't seem to function. It's, it's socialism. But let's, let's talk a little bit about the scooping up of hard currency, because one of the ways that the regime, we discovered this when we were there, because uh, we visited the Cuban hospitals and talked to doctors over there. One of the ways the regime scoops up hard currency is they send their doctors all over the world to treat patients and the regime gets paid in hard currency. They give the doctors some worthless Cuban peso and it becomes a huge money-making scam for, for the regime. But during COVID, according to the State Department human trafficking report, the regime, quote, capitalized on the pandemic by increasing the number and size of medical missions. So while Cubans are dying of COVID at home, they're sending their best doctors to foreign countries to treat other people in order to make money. Is that part of what sparked all of this? Yes. And that's been going along for a while, even before the pandemic. It's even more pronounced, like you say. They saw that opportunity, just like the Chinese are sending vaccines to sell them for five times the face value to countries willing to pay for them. Other developing countries that are willing to pay for those vaccines, it's to make money. And it is also a tool uh, to influence Cuban medical missions have been used to buy friends and uh, convince everybody that the Cuban revolution is, is an asset for the world. So yeah, that's all part of it. The healthcare system has been broken down. People used to have to take their own light bulbs to screw into the sockets where their family members were in the hospital. That, that was 20 years ago. The system has been broken. It's high time really for people who have pulled their punches against that regime for ideological reasons they need to be held accountable too. And it's high time uh, that those people start to speak up. You know, what's been remarkable is uh, some of the reporting from the island that you see from Reuters and BBC has been very straightforward. You know, there are, there, you know, I saw somebody on NBC, not a surprising thing, somebody who just basically repeated the line, that it's the uh, scarcity of the Trump sanctions. I mean, come on. He was tough on them, but the sanctions are essentially the same as they were targeted on at individuals. And he did nothing to, uh, you know, step up, restrict uh, the sale of food and, and, and medicine to the island. So those people have to be held accountable for their cynicism, too. A lot of them are Americans and American politicians. So my exit question, and you've set me up perfectly. Okay, you know, earlier you said 
we need to A, hold people accountable. We need B, to do more to help the people who are out in the streets demanding libertad. What should we be doing? We've had up till now what I would call a negative policy. In other words, we've had sanctions. We've sanctioned individuals. In addition to the embargo, we've sanctioned individuals who are human rights violators. We've gone after them. But what do we need to do to actually help the Cuban people liberate themselves from their oppressors? Well, I think they have to understand that they're not alone. And we need to use every avenue communicating through Cuban families and talk with their people on the island to find a way to overcome persistent and, and overcome the telecommunications blockade. They're not alone. And the world is understanding what's going on. That word will spread pretty quickly on the island. There's a possibility that the government will be able to get ahead of the curve on this for a little while, but it's essentially a doomed regime. So we need to be talking also about a formula of what we can do and will do as a country to help push through a democratic transition and uh, one where people have open access to U.S. trade and all that. That formula has been in place in the Helms-Burton Act, Title II, of how we can proactively engage and help uh, even before there's an elected government in normalized uh, trade relations and all that. If the regime there commits to elections, if it dismantles immediately the repressive apparatuses and legalizes normal political activity, those essential commitments, we can really get in and, and be engaged proactively. And that legislation, by the way, was written by Bob Menendez, now the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, who, you know, frankly, I have to say, if the Biden administration doesn't have the folks in place to do the creative thinking, I hope that we can reach out at least and empower people on the Hill who are committed to change in Cuba, to convene experts, to do this privately, to start looking at a task force in an urgent way, to come up with creative ways to deliver messaging on the island, to explain the formulas that we have for a democratic transition and a free market transition in partnership with the U.S. that can start to uh, liberate the Cuban people in every sense of, of that word. Exit question from me, Roger. This regime has been in power since 1959. There have been uprisings before. There have been protests before. They all get crushed. One, do you think it's possible that this will be different and that this could lead to the end of the regime? And if so, why? This is a question that uh, you've essentially already answered, but I will embroider on it. First off, a lot of us have hopefully said, this is it. It's breaking loose. This is a different situation because of social media, because of technology, because it's been 60 years because the that revolutionary figure of, of Fidel Castro is dead and buried. And because people in Cuba, what they know of their government is it's these bureaucrats, it's these obviously incompetent bureaucrats who were chosen specifically because they would not interfere with the dynastic transition, dynastic dictatorship, where uh, the Castro's family members, a guy, Castro Espin, uh, who manages all of the economy, all of the investments. He's the partner of anybody who wants to invest in Cuba today. You got to go through him. He's the godfather there. And uh, Luis Alberto Rodriguez, who handles the security apparatus. So that's all in the family. And so the Cubans are saying, okay, look, I wasn't around when Fidel uh, overthrew the Batista dictatorship, but who are these guys? And what right at all? Do they have 
the whole power of life and death over 11 million cubits. And so the time's up. And so it's basically doomed. And it's just a question of, of how violent it gets. People need to remember when they talk about unrest or bloodbath on the island, the guns are on one side. It's in the hands of the regime. If there is a serious uh, loss of life, we will know who to blame. And the history will blame those who sat and did nothing. So I, do, I think we need to be much more proactive. And President Biden can be very bold and appeal to bipartisan support in this country. Maybe one thing that we can kind of agree on in the center that it's time for Cubans to have control of their own future. And by the way, one final point, this does matter to us. It's not a question of charity. The idea of, of unrest on the island, it becomes a huge problem for us. Either a migration problem, which is a card that the Cubans always play when there's a Democrat in the White House, incidentally. And because this regime is a bunch of gangsters who are managing the narco regime in Venezuela that tried to kill the president of Colombia and may have killed, had a role in killing, the president of Haiti. This is a problem for us. And it's about time we recognize the threat that this criminal regime has always posed and certainly poses today to our our security. Roger, thank you. I, I hope you're right. I really do. I know Mark feels exactly the same way. I hope you're right. And this time will be the time for the people of Cuba. They don't deserve what they've gotten and we haven't done enough for them. So fingers crossed on both sides. Thanks for joining us. As always. Thank you guys. Danny, I'm hopeful. I think this could be a moment. I think this could finally be it. But it will require the Biden administration to step forward and really lead. In the 1970s, when the Ford administration didn't want to invite Alexander Solzhenitsyn because they didn't want to upset the Soviet Union, and it was Helms and Biden together who invited Solzhenitsyn to Washington along with Senator Scoop Jackson. So he was always a Scoop Jackson Democrat when it came to communism. He understood what communism was. And we often on this podcast bemoan, where's the old Joe Biden we knew, right? Well, this is the time when we need the old Joe Biden to step up and lead on this issue. Yeah, unfortunately, I think what we have is the old Joe Biden. And uh, with literally, (laughs) yes, we'll have to see. Look, we'll have to see. You know, uh, I'm curious to see where the you know, where the squad, which didn't hesitate to leap out to condemn the Jews. uh, I mean, Israel is on uh, on condemning this regime. There's been one person killed when the security forces opened fire on demonstrators. There was a newscaster arrested on screen, on TV, while broadcasting for being against the regime. This is irrefutable evidence. And I'm glad you're hopeful. I've seen this movie too many times and I know how it ends. So I'm, I'm not hopeful. For once, Mark Thiessen, I hope you're right and I'm wrong. If our track record is any indication, you will be very pleased with the result. (laughs) (laughs) My God. All right. I'm going to let you have the last word on that, only because we're not together in the studio. Folks, any comments, suggestions, criticism, uh, you know, don't forget to share the podcast. And thanks, as always, for listening. Take care. Our producer is Alexa Santry. And a special thanks as well to Olivia Leslie and AEI's digital strategy and video teams. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell@ai.org, Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Uh-huh.